Bam. And welcome back to This Is Not A History Lecture for another week of, well, you know what I'm doing. I told you. Uh, I have no clue what Cal's doing. Um, mine, mine is a little bit of a, I can say, so since it's 89 and we're in October and we have Hispanic Heritage Month and Disability Awareness Month and also a theme episode coming up, I was like, this is my only chance to do anything Halloween related. Yes. So I am doing Halloween related. Okay. I'm excited. Yes. I need to get in the spoopy mood. We just had our first fall-ish weather here in Texas. Well, our part of Texas. It rained today, which if you if you're from certain parts of Texas, you know that that is a miracle in and of itself right now. I was surprised to see it raining as hard as it did. It I was like, poured. It's raining. It's, I heard it's, you like leave the apartment. Yeah, I, and I was like, well, okay. Cal, I was like, what, what, where are you going? Here's it's raining. Rain. I, <laughs> I really wanted, I always want like breakfast mm-hmm. on Sundays. Makes sense. But I never get out of bed early enough to get any fast food breakfast. Mm-hmm. So on Sonic on the app, they had a half price of be- breakfast entrees, but you have to order it through the app. So it's like, okay. Oh, so I, I didn't, didn't realize. Did that. Yes, they do it every now and then. They have really good deals on the Sonic I need to app. learn how Sonic uses their app. Oh, it's easy. I just, I keep forgetting Sonic exists. You know, so Sonic is the solid. best thing about the Sonic app is that you can order a drink on it and it's happy hour all day long. <gasps> so it's half price drinks all day what? long if you order through the app. Yeah. Okay. Well, see, Sonic's one of those restaurants. Like, it is solid. Is it the best? It's fast just food? never. It you just don't there. think about it. But we in our neck of the woods just had a few like of my favorite fast food places come here. So my first thought always goes to them. Yeah. And so like, it's not that I, f- well, I forget that Sonic is there as an option, right? I don't think it's anyone's first thought other than like, but it's so solid. If you think about like drinks, you're like, yes, Sonic mm-hmm. is like your top. And one it's of your stayed top most affordable. I'd argue one of the most affordable out of fast food chains right now. Yeah. Yeah. The prices aren't bad. Surprisingly. I am also a sucker for the foot long chili cheese dog. And I so have haven't been tried that one. since I was little and the concept of a fast food hot dog. If I think too much about it, will gross That's me out. That's why I can't eat hot dogs, <laughs> um, but it is very good. And Sometimes yeah. I can, I just have to turn my brain off. Well, and- so nice. When I worked at the quilt store, um, there, they like, it was literally across the parking lot. It was like 50 steps and we would just stand into the overhang and order during happy hour. And it would be like a couple bucks for a burger oh, yeah. and like a full meal. And it was like, oh, and then like every so Tuesdays nice. they have like half price burgers. Or yeah. Something. And I'm like, why don't, why don't I get in the habit more? I need to. Yeah. This well, is my calling to eat more well, Sonic. Yeah. Well, they're the only ones who have like all day breakfast or one of the only ones. So I was like, oh, let me, yeah, let me check the app. And then they had conveniently have half breakfast entrees. Anyway, all of that is to say I had to put an app order in. And as soon as I did, and I set it for later, the as soon as I did, came. I like literally, it was fine in my room. I walked down the hallway and I was like approaching the front door and I was like, oh, I heard it. I me. heard it. And I was like, crap. And I had to go. Yeah. I was like, shit. <laughs> we live on the bottom floor, by the way, just so you, that puts it in perspective. If you can hear rain like that from the bottom of the floor it's heavy yeah and so. i was like man i'm just not and my phone broke today i'm just not having it listen i got my breakfast so i'm not complaining but i am annoyed yeah. about my phone because that's annoying also yeah. it's, it should technically be under warranty but since my mom told my aunt to get me the phone case for the wrong phone model even though i repeated it to my mom several times because i got this phone for christmas and mm-hmm. i told my parents i was like this is the last phone you'll ever have to buy me the next time i want, I want to see it let me see um the next time like i'll get a new phone i'll be on my own phone plan and it's probably not that much bigger than you. oh well, it's, like, it's a little bit bigger half an inch. okay i have a 13 and you have a probably like nine or ten yeah 
Do you have the home button still? No. Yes, you probably have a 10. Okay. Which is not that old. See, I, I know I, I need... Mine's starting to lose... Um, what do you call it? Starting to lose battery I, I mean, it's like four or five years old at this point. So yeah. it's getting up there. For the amount we use it between work, everything else, like it's yeah. probably about time to redo, but... Yeah. To re renew. Well, I was fully planning on having this phone for like... Because I had my four for... Or my 10 for mm-hmm. like five years? Four or five? Mm-hmm. No, I, I got it sophomore year. I usually don't get the latest model because like I don't see the... Like the the updates usually that make the newer ones expensive aren't things that usually benefit me. But now I'm like, oh, well, the I thing do about getting the camera quality now, yeah, the thing about getting the newest model is that it has the longest lifespan, right? That you have it, right? You know, so like you can get one, sure, that's like a hundred bucks cheaper and two years older, but that takes two years mm, off the amount of time true. you can have it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that might be my next big investment is to get myself a new phone. No. Ooh, that's gonna be an expensive one. Well, they break up the cost, so you yeah. don't have to pay for pocket. I mean, I think, like, you're on your parents' phone plan. I think uh, it's, like... For, like, a, a little while longer. When the, do they kick... They, they don't, don't kick, kick you, oh, you off. Oh, it's not insurance. They don't kick you off. Yeah, my boss still has her full-grown, like, 40-year-old son on her phone plan. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> um, I, it, they break it up to, like, 30 bucks a month. That's not terrible. No. Terrible? It's not terrible. So you can just, I don't know, send your parents' money. But anyway... One of my least favorite things happened and the speakers broke and they're making that like fuzzy sound and I hate it and I cannot stand it. And since my mom told my aunt the wrong phone case, it didn't fit my phone. So that means I had to wait. I ordered a phone that day when I got or a case that day when I got it took a million years to get here. And in the meantime, I dropped the phone in the parking lot of the five below and broke the black, the back glass. And so since I did that, the warranty is voided. <laughs> Screw you, Verizon. Anyway. We don't even have I'm an Apple mad. store in our town. so even- Yeah, we don't even have an Apple store. So I can't even take it to them to see if like the replace or repair would be cheaper than the insurance. Yeah. To re- their insurance deductible. Anyway, I'm mad. This is very first world problems. But it's just, I'm just annoyed about it. Especially because I'm about to be out of a job. So I can't really go around spending $230 to replace a phone very understandable it is cheaper than a new phone although though. you might have a, a, a one through the holidays and you wouldn't have to relearn yes. and retrain yes so i'm not officially i'm out of a job potentially i'm not out of a yeah. job but I'm, I'm gonna act like i'm out of a job until i know for sure that's I'm not out of a job that's fair <laughs> anyway that's my rant for the day very like i said very first world but i just any other way my phone could break, I would not care. Like, even if the front screen broke, the front glass broke, it'd be like, okay, this sucks, but like, whatever, I'll deal with it. Yeah. I cannot deal with speaker problems. I hate them so much. Yeah. It's like my least favorite thing to happen to a phone. Understandable. So. Anyway. Well, I'm very, very sorry <laughs> that you had to deal with that today. It's okay. I'll get over it. I just need to complain about it for for a long time, and then I'll be over it. It happens. It's, complaining happens it's healthy gotta, listen sometimes i'm not even that upset i just want to complain it's sometimes like when we I, need it it's like do you ever like have a headache but not take like pain medication just so you can complain complain about it because i definitely do that not eh, yeah like i have like joint pain that i won't take medication for but it's also because i'm always scared of building and a like reliance on medication <laughs> well you take like horse drinks <laughs> i'm talking about like ibuprofen ah. <laughs> That is a different story. <laughs> Sorry, I should have I should have remembered who I was talking to here. Yeah, I was about to say, I think it's a little different. <laughs> no, I just like to complain sometimes. That's, but that's listen, valid. 
if you want to complain about something, I'm giving you permission. My recommendation today is to complain. Complain to someone about something. <laughs> it is healthy. I think it's like actually like studied as a health benefit to like vent to people because when you bottle up your emotions, stress. Yeah. yeah, no, it's I not, totally see it. It's not good. But so, anyway, well, I'm sorry you're dealing with that. Well, that's five minutes of me complaining about my very not big deal problems. But so anyway, so well, we can hop in if you're ready. I guess so. Okay. I, I know what you're doing. As I say, everyone here should know what I'm doing. I am continuing on my multi-week focus on empires of Mesoamerica. Um, if you've been keeping up my Two weeks ago on episode, it would have been 87. I believe I talked about the Mayans. And then last week I talked about the Aztecs. And this week I am talking about the Inca Empire, um, which is super fun. I'm loving it. I'm starting to get to the point where my brain is muddling things. I was going to say, it sounds like you're trying to convince yourself like more I, than anything. I, I had a moment when I was like scrolling through websites and I had to like stop and make sure that I was researching the right civilizations yeah. because there were, there were things talking about how like which societies contributed to others over time. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, hold on. I got to make sure I'm doing this right. Um, but I think I got it all correct. So we should be all good. Okay. And that means that this is the last week I'm covering an individual empire before we hit episode 90 in which I will be covering the demise. Well, not the demise, but the um, destruction of these empires at the hands of the conquistadors so that is a look at next week for me you've known no surprises from me in the past few weeks you've known exactly what i'm working on so let's strike off on the incan empire all right um i would like to say on this one because of stuff we'll get into it's very hard to find solid factual documentation from the actual society from the civilization that tells us exactly you know how many people were in the empire at any given time um how just just the expanse of land because as cal mentioned in her episode about machu picchu they didn't have a written i was so afraid that you were gonna do this research and then just like prove me wrong oh no (laughs) i'm pretty sure that was right oh my god (laughs) everything i'm reading everything i found was like yeah no no written systems and that is part of what makes the incan empire so distinctive yeah um that and the kipu um Mm -hmm. so yeah i'll just jump into it but uh just remember that when i talk about like populations and stuff i was seeing stratified numbers from you know 4 million to 20 million like mm-hmm. i like massively um varied numbers so when we're looking at the incan empire we're kind of looking at the 13th century when they became founded so to speak because they grew through 1532 33ish when the conquistadors you know ruin everything and this is mostly in western south america I saw multiple accounts of this being the largest civilization, but that should have belonged to the Aztecs, according to my previous research. And I'm thinking it might be population versus space. Geographically largest. Yeah. Because the Incan empire was massive. Um, So we do know that the Incan empire, if you set it next to other empires during this time period, it is the biggest, not just in the Americas, but in the world. Wow. It's huge wow it's that's what makes me think it's land oriented i'm pretty sure that sounds right yeah Yeah. um and being so large means that the incan empire is also defined 
by the myriad of different biomes and terrains that are in it. We are talking everything from jungles to swampy lands, the famous Andes mountains, the deserts, plains. You're getting a vast variety of space, but also people who have adapted to live within those spaces. It's kind of like if you asked a Texan to move to New York and it's like a culture shock a little bit. Mm -hmm. I was talking to one of my friends in New York and she's like, I'm just cold all the time. And I was like, yeah, and it's not even winter yet. (laughs) Um, So they're often notable also for their great architecture. Um, See Cal's episode about Machu Picchu, uh, what, five episodes ago, probably? Six? Yeah, I think it was the last theme episode, so 85. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, You'll see me reference that episode a couple times, so I would just go listen to it if I were you. (laughs) Um, But like she said, there is no written record. Um, The closest thing they had was the Kipu, which Cal described, and I'll describe again, as the those ropes that had a myriad of different strings and other ropes tied onto them so that they could be knotted at different lengths and used for record keeping. Mm. I'll go into a little bit more about our considered written records for the Incan Empire a little bit later. Sometimes this empire will be recurred, referred to as Tawantinsuyu. Oh, that might have been the cleanest. I'd said that today. I tried like 50 times to say it. <laughs> um, at its peak, we're looking somewhere around... A hundred ethnic groups. Oh, wow. Many of them with their own languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Cal also mentioned, there was a overarching language that was kind of forced upon them. But a lot of them kept aspects of their original cultures, which may have also created pockets of satisfied communities rather than the Aztecs who like came in and were like, you will mm-hmm. do everything we say and led to a lot of inner turmoil and revolt. Yeah, the Mongol approach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, you'll see some really unique combinations of religion, uh, language, but it's it's thousands and thousands of miles wide and long. The term Inca itself comes from the words Sapa Inca, which means the emperor of the Incan Empire. So like the word Inca means like ruler or emperor mm. um, and just kind of got adapted. Gotcha. And you know what else sets them apart from having no writing? Hmm. They do not have a currency. You know what? Yeah. There's no currency used. And that, uh, to me, I was like, this is a civilization that my mind began to, when I found that out. Inca. Actually, yeah. Like, <laughs> I'll talk about it in their agricultural section a little bit later. But, like, they are supplied for by the government through the mm-hmm. people. And... Mm-hmm. It makes me, like, when I read that there was no written language, no currency, my brain really These started guys, to think about them in the abstract. No, no language, no currency, just vibes. Literally just vibes. That's all you need. <laughs> but, like, if you think about it, like, all the things that we position our civilization on, money, uh-huh. and, like, like, it doesn't, it is proven to not have to exist. Yeah. To function. That's right. And this is an empire that is known for, I mean... It was talked about as like the cities of gold um, mm-hmm. and, and great prosperity and, and beautiful architecture and invention. So if you think about it, like not only can you survive without this stuff, but you can flourish without this stuff. Isn't you just have to have we, a good what system. What we can do outside of a Western focused. It really is. And it made me realize that I probably don't know enough about. I mean, I know that I wish I knew more about other cultures, but like this to learn that one of the strongest and largest civilizations Mm-hmm. literally functioned without it i'm just like my mind could never have processed that because right. it's just sound such a foundational You're part like, of nah, like, me in the history well, it I've was like when i found out that 
they didn't have a written language. I was like, like, no. No, that literally can't be right. That's wrong. Like, like, no. And even, like I said, like, I was still worried that you were going to be like, Kaylee, what's wrong? (laughs) (laughs) No, I found literally nothing about written languages, only claims that, or facts that they didn't. So you, you nailed it. Okay, good. Yeah. So That's those a are a big claim to get wrong. I know, right? <laughs> Just make something up about the Incan Empire. Oh, by the way, oh, by the could way, you imagine? <laughs> yeah, London doesn't have a written language. I don't know if you guys know that. <laughs> England has never written anything down. <laughs> uh, so so interesting, so interesting. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things that set the Incan Empire apart. Um, I'm gonna go into the origin and backstory and kind of the chrono- the basic chronology, because the Incan Empire. If you're looking at those dates of kind of starting to show up in the 13th century and going through the Spanish conquistadors, it's not that old. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at the time that, like, the kind of, I don't want to call them, like, certified emperors, but, like, by the time they had settled on, like, a, a dynastic growth, yeah, it's less than, like, 100 years oh, before wow. the conquistadors arrived. Oh, wow. Like, the Incans got the short end of the stick, man. They were yeah, doing great, they- and... The Spaniards showed up and were like, hey, we're going to... Which is so, like... I mean, I know timelines are different in, like, the quote-unquote new world, you Mm -hmm. know? Because, you know, it's ancient Aztec and ancient Maya compared to, like, ancient Greek and ancient Rome. Those are two very different periods. And it, like, it messes up... Your perception of time. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, ancient Inca, and it's, like, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's like, whoa. Yeah. And I'm not... Well, I think we've placed so much in Eurocentric culture, so much emphasis and um appreciation and the longevity of cultures Mm. not in the power that they wielded that's true um and that i think that sometimes takes away from our appreciation of what those cultures supplied and contributed that is because we're so focused on like which ones last the longest which ones made the biggest impact like Mm -hmm. i mean the egyptians are kind of the exception because like yes to both longevity (laughs) and cultural impact but like there are so many civilizations that contribute so much and then like something befalls it and it's not that old and we assume because of eurocentric standards sometimes that if you're going to do anything big you have to be here for a really long time that's true this is true i think i might have found a really i'm sure there's papers written on that but that would have been a really cool oh, that topic would. to write on back when we were like in school hmm. Hmm. keep that in your back pocket oh uh, yeah if i ever go back to school <laughs> quick trademarked <laughs> yeah trademark no uh, one take no. that idea i'm sure it's literally been written on a million <laughs> times um so yeah, again, we're going to face the problems that we did when we were talking about the Aztecs last week, that it's hard to know what's folklore, what's been exaggerated, what's oral history, and what is fact, especially because again, ding, 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 we're not working with a written account. Archaeology has told us a lot, as well as these memorizers who it was like their job to remember the histories and pass them mm-hmm. on, which we see in a lot of cultures that value oral history. Um, and of course, the Spanish accounts have been found and recorded, which again, it may be very warped based on their perception of what these people were, if they were, you know, civilized or not, which I hate using that term. Yeah. Um, cause they were obviously, if you can create a massive, like, obviously they were, the Spaniards obviously. had no idea what they walked in on. Yeah. Um, the freaking Spanish, it's like these losers that have written, <laughs> written uh, languages. It's like, <laughs> if they, like if the Spanish thought they weren't so great, why'd you steal all their gold and silver, bruh? Like, <laughs> Um, so we see, an this, I don't know if this is consistent across other conquistadors, but we do see an actual push for record keeping by the Spanish after their arrival in this, uh, in this empire. 
and they wrote down a lot of what they heard from the indigenous populations. So we have a sort of like Spanish account of Incan history because they acknowledge at least enough to be able to say like, oh, this is obviously going to be an important thing. Um, sorry, <laughs> brain got distracted. Um, but uh, there's from between Spanish accounts and everything, we can even trace back to before the Incan Empire. Um, there were groups that were there beforehand that created things that still exist to this day, like uh, the Nazca lines, which are these like lines so big that they show up in the landscaping still. Mm. Like, what is that? It's it's really cool. Google it. Um, like like I don't okay. have time to explain it unfortunately because the Incas like empire is so deep, but you can find pictures of it and stuff. It's it's really cool. Um, that's a previous civilization that, again, I wish I had time to go over every Mesoamerican civilization, but I would literally be a whole different podcast. Um, there probably is a podcast for that. There, I'm sure there is. There's a podcast for everything. Yep. Um, so the Inca did have a good layout of their dynastic history, though, and they recorded it through the Kipu. Kipu. So they were able to kind of, like, get years um, on dynasties and like uh, record how long most of these rulers lasted and everything. What we are missing is the ability to fully understand it because modern linguists still haven't broken. Like mm -hmm. they know the statistics of the Kipu, but like the um, what's the word, the literary aspect of them, they have not quite broken yeah. into yet. And from what I saw too, like everyone kind of did it differently. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, okay, we just crack the code on one and we can do read all of them. Yeah. It's like varies from town to town. Again, a massive empire like this, you're going to see d differentiation yeah. between your also while I'm thinking about it. And since we're both t museum people, why have I only seen Kipu in art museums? art museums? Because art museums do not notoriously and are well known to not offer any context because they're like, <laughs> we don't want to. Yeah, I think we might have talked about this the week we did the Machu Picchu one. I don't know. We mentioned that they were in art museums, but did we talk about I don't it know after if I specifically mentioned like that kind of thing yeah. needs interpretation. Well, there's one at the Dallas Museum of Art. And there's I think one I might the, have mentioned that. Well, yeah, there's one at Houston. Um, Museum of Fine Arts, Museum of Fine Arts, Houston, too. Mm -hmm. And you did mention that, but I just want to say, yeah. no, it is a like I'm bringing it up again because, like, when you see something like that in an art museum, you're like, okay, I don't really know what this is. Mm -hmm. But like knowing that having it in a place that can actually provide background, yeah. and explain what that object is, is so much more meaningful. So mm -hmm. why are they in art museums? Well, it's always struck me as like really interesting too, because a lot of like in the Dallas Museum of Art. Um, they have a whole section on Mesoamerican art and some of it is so cool and so amazing. But some of it, I realized there is a very different percentage of it that is marked as, um, religious idols and stuff. And to be fair, we do unfortunately have a smaller pool to pull from when it comes to that stuff. Cause so much of it was destroyed by conquistadors and, mm -hmm. and, um, colonizers and stuff like that. So we don't quite have the same liberties to pick and choose as we do from others. But a lot of the time they're like, if you look in like European wings of art museums, a lot of it's painting, yeah, like romantic paintings mm -hmm. and like descriptions of everyday life. You don't see that as much when you're talking about like the cultural wings in art museums. A lot of the time, it's like, or sorry, like in the um, like other civilizations parts of art museums. A lot of the time, you get like religious artifacts and stuff yeah. on display as art. Which mm -hmm. yes, but it's always felt a little odd to me that you're like I don't know I. I love a good art museum, but I think 
of the museums, they're probably among the most problematic. I think it's, like you said, it's so hard to provide context. Well, it's it's not even hard to provide provide context. A lot of art museums, like, their philosophy is, well, we don't want to give background on these objects because we don't want to potentially sway the yeah. interpretation of the art. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be subjective, which is an opinion I, I, I yeah. can appreciate. But when you have artifacts like a kipu... Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of, it looks like, you know, a ring with some knots on it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this would have meant so much more to me if I knew what this object was yeah. and what it was used for. I do appreciate that Dallas has some, like, pretty decent descriptions. And we also know as museum people that what's the average time that someone spends reading the label? It's like 15, no, it's not even 15 seconds. It's, it's like, like less than it's like five. five or something like that. It's yeah. really small. So even if people were to provide full panel explanations on it, the majority of people won't read it. I would because I'm that. Well, it's not person. even. It's it's the removal of the chance. Right. It's right. not. It's not it's about. Not, well, no one's going to read it. So why do we even have mm-hmm. it? It's like you're not even going to give me the option. And that's why it bothers me a lot. I think to have other civilizations like like not Eurocentric ones in art museums where you don't get that context because mm-hmm. a lot of the time it's like oh a traditional mask or a um, golden idol from the time and I'm like great but you've removed the importance of their history from it too yeah. it's not like art from like a, a painting on the wall it has more significance than that mm-hmm. and i think you're right that's something that it just seems kind of out of place basically my point is something like a kupu seems kind of out of place at an art museum yeah when you know there is an art to keeping a kupu i'm sure mm-hmm. and i'm sure they're very intricate mm-hmm. and i've only really seen a handful because of you know i haven't been to a million art museums yeah but like it deserves more. It deserve because it it was the record keeping of an entire civilization. Yeah, it deserves a little more than just a. And you're a just date. and you're literally not that art is bad, but like you're just showing it as an artistic thing when it's like yeah. an extremely practical and useful tool. It just it feels yeah. It feels like you're not doing credit to what the object's history actually is. Right, you're reducing it down to its aesthetic rather than exactly its exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. I just No, I actually I really see where you're coming from on that. That yeah. makes me think a lot. It just about it feels out of place, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like it just seems and it also makes me wonder, well, what other artifacts are like that in art museums? Right. You know? Like who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. No, that's very, very true. Huh. So. You're gonna have me up all night thinking about that now. <laughs> um Yeah, so there are records we believe of like with more details about the dynasties in Kipu. We just don't fully understand them. Um, but the traditions that we do have that take us back to the very early time of the Inca starts in, um, Pakari Tempu, about 15 miles from where the capital, capital would eventually be. Their, um, their founder, Manco Capac, Capac, uh, led them to their, their new capital. Um, there are variations on this folklore. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't want to say myth because... It's not, there's, there's gotta be yeah, some sort of truth is, in myth it. Myth is a loaded word. Yeah. So it's, I'm going to call it the, like the, the lore, the origins. Um, the story is either that, well, that Menko was the son of Inti, the sun God, and he was sent to earth either where he emerged from a lake or a cave as one of four brothers and maybe four sisters. And that either he killed his brothers or that they died on their journey to a new a new place, to their new land. Gotcha. That he took leadership uh, of his sisters and their followers, or their devotees, 
before they finally found their way to the valley of Cusco. There were a lot of variations I saw on a very similar thing, but I but it, it was obvious that this leader for them, whether he had his, like, some accounts said he had a son and a wife. Some accounts didn't acknowledge that at all. So mm-hmm. I think the the basis of it is that there was some sort of godly inspiration or that he was the son of a god that led them to this new place. So there's some sort of divine providence leading them to their new capital. That's really all you need to know anyway. Yeah, exactly. So we see that first capital in the 12th century at Cusco, uh, Peru. We are talking about a massively fast expansion. I know we talked about the Aztecs doing that as well, but within a hundred years, they've started to gain major control. Um, And again, when you're going to, at the height of your empire, control about 12 million people, that's you've got to move fast. You you have to be effective. Um, Cusco would be the kind of physical center of the civilization as well, because it the term I'll get into a little bit later that the alternate name is literally means like the four um, territories or the four. Uh, factions kind of and Cusco is kind of where they all meet so it's quite literally accessible as possible to have I mean as much as you can for one capital in all of this space Mm -hmm. it's as accessible as you can get between those different divisions um this may have actually been very beneficial as they spread outward from the capital because areas around there had already built their own individual roads and civilizations and if you already have a road you're a bit easier to conquer. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, that yeah. did help them a little bit in their massive and, expansion. Uh, we definitely will see that again. Oh, yes. Next week. Or whenever you do the Inca. <laughs> the Inca? I'm doing the Inca right now? No, whenever you do the, oh, their oh, conquest. Oh, oh, the conquest. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so they go through about four notable emperors, or Sapa Inca, before they kind of, this, this group that settled there differentiate themselves from just any other small tribe. That's when Maita Kapek takes over and starts pushing that expansion across the neighboring areas, forcing them to pay tribute, very notably. And then everyone after him starts kind of taking that same um, ideology to just expand, expand. And eventually, um, they kind of come up with... They each kind of further their own methods for control of these areas. Some uh, historians take the viewpoint that the Sapa Incas, individual emperors, may have tried for diplomacy before taking over an area, but would resort to violence if necessary, which does make them a bit different than the Aztecs, and may have contributed to the satisfaction of the areas that they had taken over, mm-hmm. and why there weren't any massive rebellions that we know of in the time. Um, by the eighth emperor, Verosha Inca, um, he has control in the early 1400s. He gives them the most expansive power yet. Um, this leader had two uncles with great military power and with their help manages to defeat the Aymaka kingdom or Aymaka kingdom southward and again, gain control of the Urubamba Valley. There we go. His son ends up holding Cusco for him while he flees. Um, Verosha kind of like flees during a, a, an attack or a siege or aggression. Mm-hmm. And his son ends up being the one to hold Cusco. And he does it well enough that he beats back the enemy and he becomes the Sapa Inca. He expands things even further and takes the name Pachac... I said it like 20 times today in practice. Pachacuti. And he's the one mm-hmm. that gives the name Tawantinsuyu, the land of four quarters. Okay. That's what I was looking for. Quarters. That's the word I couldn't remember <laughs> that literally means four. Um, four fours. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> he may have been the, um, I, Pachacuti, I mean, may have been the original guy that came up with the idea of forced relocation for ethnic groups. Because mm-hmm. that puts them, when you take someone away from their homeland, they're a little more disoriented and they don't have quite the same connection to their yeah, land. But also, it could be used as a reward too. Like, hey, you worked with us, so why don't you move to this area where, like, we'll give you all this land and it's very fertile and it's got good growth and all mm-hmm. this stuff. So it, it goes either way. Um, lot, And he also introduces the idea that if you succeed someone else or take over their territory or their position in the government, you do not get their resources. Hmm. You don't get their wealth or anything like that. You um, have to build it on your own. Okay. And this is like a huge, um, not instigation, um, not not prompt, encouragement, I should say. There's a word I'm looking for. Uh, It encourages people to build their own wealth to keep expanding to keep taking over it's motivator it's a motivator mm-hmm. for these new rulers because they can't just pick up where their predecessor left off and build something for themselves okay um but this we do see a lot of emperors incentive incentive thank you there, you there go. we go um <laughs> but this turnover does make it easier for the spanish conquistadors to show up and during a time of um power being handed off being just like hey we're here you don't quite mm-hmm. have your stuff together right now during this succession issue. We're yeah. going to take over. Um, but much of their origin story of, you know, finding a new place, setting down a capital and taking over other areas nearby becomes kind of their justification. Like it is their birthright to continue expanding. Okay. So that's part of why the Incan empire universally just grows so quickly. Gotcha. So in societal settings, similar to the Aztecs that we talked about last week, Class is very stratified. It is not very mobile at all. Um, if you want a list of every government position and job you could have, feel free to go take a look. Um, but that's a whole episode, and I only have a day for the Inca. Um, like I said, the um, emperor has a pretty expansive control, but he sets up an aristocracy to help him do it. I should say nobles. Aristocracy is a very European word. Um, he's not going to like let people question him, but he does promote speakers of the universal language and the original group as much as possible into those positions of power, which makes it a very desirable thing, like to speak the language, to be, Mm. to be truly Incan. Like it makes it very powerful. Um, And he keeps to a very pyramid type hierarchy that like one guy controls 10 and each of those 10 guy controls Mm -hmm. 10 under them. It makes supervising very easy. It makes it easier for everyone to just know this is my responsibility. I'm in charge of this guy and this guy. There's not a whole lot of delegation or there's a whole lot of delegation that allows him to rule them all with blanket statements and everyone to, you know, dole out the individual, uh, address their individual issues without having to bring them straight to the emperor. Mm -hmm. We don't have great documentation on what roles Queens might've had. Um, if they had a lot of power, a lot of sway, if they're more ornamental, for lack of a better word. Mm. Um, we do think that there may have been a couple instances of coupled rulers, like, like mm. more than one at a time, maybe like brothers or two guys. Like it's, it's kind of sketch. I saw that mentioned in one place, but not anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that until we can understand Kipu as a linguistic tool that we probably won't know. Yeah. Um, so the spoken language that made people very, you know, it, it went to the, like the desirable 
positions and kept a universal language that allowed them to communicate and trade very well is called Kichuwu. Kichua, sorry, Kichua. Um, and again, they didn't write in it. So it had to be pretty general enough to allow an entire civilization to communicate without getting too marred by local dialects. Like, you know, there's parts of the South here in Texas that their English is a whole different kind of English than what anyone in Colorado is speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like those videos you see on TikTok of like people with real thick accents, mm-hmm. real thick, like always, accents. Yeah, they're always Southern, uh-huh. and people are like, I can't understand what they're saying. But people who are like, I saw from one last week, and someone was just talking about barbecue, and I was like, I understood every word of that. Yeah, like, and then what people are like, what are, what they, are they saying? saying? And I'm like, grow up. Just listen. Open your ears. I know, right? It's, it's not. It's not that difficult. But like, <laughs> it's not that hard. Just listen. Yeah. Um. So that definitely. Um. Sorry, got distracted there for a second. Um. That contributes to the day to day life. Um. And resources and how they all interact to have a communal. You know, you aren't gonna like war with your neighbor as much if you can just talk things out. And let's just say it like that. Um, in theory. And a, yeah, in theory. And a universal language also allows for a universal religion. Um, the Incan religions focused a lot around gods of nature and animism. Sitting towards the top of that pile is Viracocha, I believe it's pronounced. Um, he, he's the god that was their creator and to who they owed their culture. Um, Apa Ula... Wow, I was so close on that one. Apa Ulapu was the rain god... Then uh, Inti was the sun god. There is like literally goddesses of like, um, like prosperity and like the hearth and stuff like that. So it's very, it's got a whole pantheon, a lot like we've seen in other cultures. It's really interesting to me how similar a lot of like, like pantheon t- style mm-hmm. stuff is set up. Like that's, there's a lot of similarities. And I mean, people around the world are going to appreciate the same things because those are usually the things we need to live. But it's still very interesting to me that, like, huh, you know, there's these are very similar systems. Right. Yeah. And they're and very notably, you know, across the world from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it makes me wonder because, I mean, we, we saw how the Olmec influenced other cultures directly after them. That it's like, okay, I can see why if there are people running between these civilizations and contributing to them, we're going to see some overlap. They're going to inspire each other's ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the Incan empire, they built massive structures in honor of their gods. Um, the sun temple in Cusco was massive. We're talking like a thousand, two hundred feet around. Wow. And you talked a bit about how, um, about Machu Picchu and what it might have been and everything. So even if it wasn't just a generic structure, they, they Mm -hmm. definitely spent time doing that for their gods. Yeah. Um, and they had to make some sort of effort to standardize it because, again, this was a religion enforced across the empire. But those local areas, like I said, were allowed to keep some of their original gods, which contributed to individual pockets of very unique culture um, and religious beliefs, which you do see in many other cultures through time. You see it. I was going to say, it sounds like a early Christianity. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, we see it much more recently in America um, when slavery was in practice um a lot of Mm -hmm. religions got mixed with catholicism i believe that's where voodoo originates correct voodoo and like some of the other no voodoo 
I thought it was a mixture of like Caribbean and Catholicism. Like Caribbean. I don't religions. know if it's no, because it comes from the Caribbean. I don't know if oh, okay. it's I mean, maybe the version that's practiced in New Orleans specifically. That might be what I'm thinking Because of, of the cultural mixing there. Okay. But, uh, like, voodoo, which is pronounced like voodoo, actually. Okay. Yeah, um, comes from Haiti. Okay. And I, I listened the to a podcast. The last time I was, yeah. I could be pretty, I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. I listened to a podcast oh, cool, about yeah. it not too long ago, actually. Um, uh, it's been a while since I was in New Orleans. The last time I was there, someone was talking to me about how, like, religions combined there. And I they said something about voodoo. I I yeah, shouldn't, I, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if specifically the New Orleans, like, mm-hmm. v- voodoo in practice in Haiti is called voodoo. But voodoo, okay. I believe, I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe is what's practiced in, like, the New Orleans and, like, southern Louisiana area. Okay. And that could be, I mean, it most likely is the result of cultural mixing between mm. Catholic and Okay. Caribbean cultures. I just know it was a There's, very common um, thing to see cultures that were forced yeah. to adapt to others combining their religions. Oh, absolutely. Because yes. it's also easier to like, if there's someone watching you to keep an eye on you, it's easy to be like, hey, no, we kept your religion. See, it's there. Right. It's just not totally what. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah it's here. This is Catholicism. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> yeah. So you definitely see some of that. But again, keeps people satiated because they don't have to completely convert. But um, the Incan pantheon, they did offer human and animal sacrifices to them um, and aspects of divination that were a little more prominent than some of the other civilizations I've talked about so far. It allowed priests to presumably predict like warfare and future events, understanding illnesses and, you know, discerning who was right, who was wrong, who might have committed a crime, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It also helped them with like illnesses and how they interpreted like healing and stuff like that which Hmm. is really cool because they also they seem to have a much better grasp of medicine Hmm. um there's evidence of cocoa leaves used for medical use for energy so they understood caffeine and stimulants in some way there's also evidence of trepanation surgery which is it's when you drill holes into a skull to relieve pressure after a brain injury. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. And they found huh. skulls that have like noted, like, like almost like drill marks, like something like carefully went into the skull. Right, like intentionally to made. pressure. Yeah. Huh. Not like lobotomy, but like as like a, an attempt to relieve pressure, they think. So it, they were, they were doing like brain surgery in a way, like, which yeah. is kind of crazy cool. Um, Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Very I advanced on that front. Surgery. I cannot. <laughs> yeah. Um, less advanced than the Incan. That checks out for me, myself, and I. Right. I, I'm, <laughs> I couldn't function without currency. I'm not as cool as the Incan Empire. I mean, I could function without currency. It's Capitalism would crush you in the I process. I could not but function in this society without that currency. That is true. Yeah. Written yeah. language, I probably could not function without. I could not either. Yeah. Um, their, their view of death was very influenced by religion. Um their belief in a cyclical a cyclical life it almost is like reincarnation if you follow the this general moral code like don't hurt each other don't do anything stupid don't lie don't cheat etc cetera, etc cetera. when you died you would move on to the next life in the warmth of the sun um otherwise you would be stuck down on the cold earth the sun is obviously between their god inti and everything and the gold they use literally be con- being considered the sweat of the sun it's oh. very obvious that they highly valued the sun it's their heaven essentially um and i think that definitely contributes again we see it in the other empires their concept of human sacrifice not necessarily being like a terrible terrible thing Mm -hmm. um 
the we do see more children and teenagers offered as sacrifices in this time period. And at the end, mm-hmm. I'll discuss a little bit about like the the maiden that we were talking mm. about last week. Um, um, but they practiced a lot of mummification, um, including the emperors who would often be ceremonially brought around for people to see after their death, kind of like put on a world tour, <laughs> you know? Come well, see. I mean, the queen just laid in state for how many weeks? Yeah. Uh, maybe just a week, but you know, a while. it's the same, yeah. it's the same concept. Mm-hmm. Um, after Spanish destruction, there were accounts, um, well, I should say after the Spanish colonized them, they did take some accounts um, that we have in their records of something called um, November being the month of carrying the dead, hmm. in which they were removed from the places that they were stored, dressed them up in like fine clothing, they would feast with them and take them around town, and depending on your class, obviously, that varied, rich people could afford to feed their their mummies their their ancestors and everything like better every day and then Mm -hmm. some people might just be able to do it once um but mummification was a pretty pretty i don't want to say pretty regular um it's not it's it's common enough to be notable um in the society normalized Um, yeah normalized is a good word for it um but that was just part of what they did for the gods and for the afterlife and everything there was also fasting and prayer um, a million ways to honor the gods. We have lost, unfortunately, a lot of... Oh, animal. Animal hit my mic. We good? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, it was just Kitty on accident. Um, that guy. Um, we do believe that we have lost many of the gold and silver artistic and religious figures because the Spanish melted them down, both for use, but both also because the Spanish hated the idea of idols, of like, you know... Catholics. <laughs> No, Catholics are super idly. Yeah. Why do they? That's weird. Uh, I think it's the idea of like what they consider to be. I don't use this word. I do not use this word in any serious way. It's the H word. I don't want to say it. Even in like collaboration. Heck. That's not the word I was thinking of. It's a word they use in Pocahontas. I think they use it in Pocahontas. Uh, Heathens. Oh, yeah, I hate that word. I hate that word so much, especially in this context. But the Spanish considered these... Heretics, maybe, is a better word. That's a better word for it. They they considered it to be so uncivilized and, like, mm. offensive to their own religious beliefs that they just destroyed it. You know, that really made me realize I don't know the actual definition of, of heathen. It Because all I know is that my aunt would call us a bunch of heathens. It's like, I mean, it's contextual. Like, I've seen, I've heard it used in a million different ways. Mm. But at its root, it means, like, uncivilized. It, it means, like, it can mean, like, savage. Okay. And that's, yeah, that that's why sense. I don't like that word. Um, it definitely has a different context than the S word, but I don't like using it in reference to any cultures, but that's how the Spanish viewed gotcha. a lot of the like religious practice here. And again, we talked about this last week. The idea of human sacri- sacrifice to them was so horrific that it's very likely that they mm. changed their accounts because of how they viewed the religious aspects of the civilization. Mm. Um, so, yeah. That's kind of the religious overview. The architecture, if you want like a deep dive on Machu Picchu, I recommend, again, listening to Cal's thing. It all, she also did a great job describing like uh, the actual construction methods, like how the rocks you. are used and everything. So 
I won't go over all that again and bore you. Um, small structures like homes were often made out of mud or adobe, a little more readily accessible and quicker to build. We do see fortresses because of that that one guy, you know, who I was talking about, who like expanded and made all those rules. Mm-hmm. He's the one that was really like, hey, we should. Was it him? I might have written down the wrong name. Um, one of the one of the emperors was very focused on maintaining the breadth that their empire had spanned, and ended up putting kind of like almost like garrisons or fortresses uh-huh. in like along those civilizations, so that yeah. they had outposts of yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's also part of the information transfer system. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because it was they were very conveniently located about mm-hmm. a day's walk. Mm-hmm. And so every day's walk, you'd have food, a place to stay, blah, 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 um, which we'll get into yeah. when they get invaded because it's a problem. <laughs> people are like, hey, let's just keep going down this road. We're gonna, we going? We'll <laughs> find a new outpost soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, so during ex- major expansion like Pachacuti, um, we see them building up already existing empire or civil like small villages instead of just focusing on taking more which helps them when they like that that system is massively helpful when they're trying to fortify against attack from other small groups that might be like hey we don't want to be taken over and they're like try us just try buddy we've got we've got little forts everywhere mm-hmm. um they even make a match for a massive fortress guarding their capital um that, that helped with the longevity but again when the spanish come with actual bullets like there wasn't yeah there's yeah. so much you can do uh-huh yeah um and i don't know if you mentioned this in your section i feel like you did but the n- construction methods with which they worked like the the rocks being so tightly fit together and everything mm-hmm. is what has allowed a lot of their structures to remain standing through earthquake and seismic activity yeah because it's a yeah. very active region no i i think i did because i mean it is like it's it is the Andes Mountains mm-hmm. and that it, those are still it's literally still very active. They're forming like geological forming mountains. They are very very young mountains. Um, yes. So yeah, no, I I'm pretty sure I did, but I might have just mentioned it in the context of Machu Picchu. So it's good to know okay. that that's why that's what they did. Yeah, everywhere. it is widespread yeah. everywhere. Um, they had definitely shared their building techniques with the civilizations that they were conquering. Mm. So their agriculture, much. I mean, we see a lot of similar production types because again aztec incan mayan a lot of them are dealing with the same staple crops but when you have again so many diverse biomes you get a very much a much wider diversity of food but Mm -hmm. we still see a lot of focus in maize amaranth quinoa squash peanuts tomatoes pepper cotton cassava sweet potatoes etc a very nice wide variety during expansion uh major expansions of cities that's when they really were like hey we're we're building this place up may as well go in and put in some actual like irrigation so they would channel rivers and terraces through there they would even use like bird guano as fertilizer so they understood a lot about agriculture and how to make sure that the land was fertile and that they weren't stripping it completely oh that's cool guano is such a fun word i just want to point that out well i it's so i mean it means boop but first time i ever yeah if you don't i don't know the origin i'm assuming that's not an english word um that does not sound like an english word no um the first time i ever heard it i was on a field trip in the natural bridge caverns in san antonio texas and they explained that back guano used to be all over the caves but at some point it actually got to be really popular 
like it, like a uh-huh. necessary resource because of World War II bombs. Oh. Which I need to verify that, I guess, because that <laughs> sounds like something someone would say to keep a five-year-old interested, which it might have been. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think that's correct. I don't because either. what other five-year-old would be interested in... <laughs> Besides you, Kat. Maybe it was just a way to keep you interested. Maybe it was just me. Because I cannot imagine telling a five-year-old, this was this bat poop was used in World War II bombs. They would look at me like I was talking another language. I'm going to have to Google it while you're doing your section. Yeah, um, you should. Yeah, I should. I It was probably something that my brain also conflated as a five-year-old and was, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Well... I'm glad that you as a five-year-old enjoyed that fact. I really and did. The first time I heard that word was in the second Ace Ventura movie. So <laughs> I've never seen different. any Ace Ventura movies. I don't think you would enjoy them. That's valid. I, that's <laughs> probably why I haven't watched them. Yeah. Um, um, they're not, I wouldn't say. The first one is incredibly transphobic. So oh, there's that. Um, that's not great. No. The second one is not, I haven't seen it in a while, but it's not any sort of phobic as far as I remember. But the first one is incredibly transphobic. So. Oh, that's not great. Yeah. yeah no. Hmm. Don't love that. Well, they did use guano. Um, I don't know if it was World War II bombs, but they definitely used it here <laughs> in um, agriculture. Um, they were also able to, like Cal mentioned, they didn't have, like, load-bearing pack animals, like like huge cattle or horses. But mm. they did have llamas, alpacas, dogs, ducks, and guinea pigs were very common. <laughs> as load-bearing animals. <laughs> I was like, what? Sorry, that was a really unattractive snort. My allergies have been acting up because of the rain. Um, oh my god. That would be funny. I was just, like, what? Like, a singular brick on the back of a duck just dragging it with all of his might down the road. Oh man, listen, I don't think you hey, can get a duck that. to do anything. Doodle that in your little book. Oh, Cal's, my Cal's book. doodling. I'm, well, I'm supposed to be doodling. Instead, I'm playing a phone game, but I promise I'm listening. I am an active listener because I said, you said ducks and I- And you caught it. And I caught it, yeah. not not understanding what you mean, but yes, <laughs> I did hear you say that. Um, yeah. So most farmers um, were pretty self-sufficient. Um, the The percentage that they produced and got to keep for themselves, a lot of them were pretty self, you know, suppl- su- supplying, I guess is the best way to say that. Sure. Um, but with the animals they did have, it allowed wool and clothing to be woven from either, you know, llamas, alpacas, et cetera, et cetera. The textiles are notably, like the ink and textiles are notably advanced and not advanced, but like beautiful. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but a lot of them paid taxes on their land by labor. Cause again, no currency. So you could pay tribute in whatever you produced or the labor that you were willing to give up to the government. Obviously trade in life is very affected by that lack of currency, since those roads, since they didn't like trade with a currency, they didn't use a lot of those huge roads for markets and trade as we would consider it. Mm-hmm. Um, you could like you can move stuff along them, but you didn't need to like go to market to make a living to buy food or produce your own. It was very different. So conquered and assimilated groups. Um, were able to trade when needed based on that, you know, universal language and all that. But it was helped by two major roads that ran north to south, allowing top to bottom travel, one along the coast and one further through the mountains that was kind of running parallel, you know, 
as parallel as you can get trying to get through the mountains mm-hmm. um, and ran just about as far. If we're talking about total roadways through this empire, we're probably talking something along 15,000 miles of roadway or more. Um, and that's like all your back streets and everything. But oh, some sources said that these major roads were used primarily for government business and military strategy, allowing um, like runners with communications and the kipu to possibly run, like sprint, mm-hmm. up to 150 miles a day. Because you could hand something off at the next outpost and let that runner take it further. Kind of like mm-hmm. the Pony Express system where you get a fresh horse, but mm-hmm. it's a fresh runner. You So they could... Really? Yeah. When these roads were clear and good and they weren't filled with people, these runners could get places incredibly fast. Um, so that means that if you were having to transport things for trade or to pay tribute, you probably had to take some of the back roads. Those gaps and shortcuts, though, were helped by bridges that were made out of natural materials, like vines in some places. Um, and even... That's- Okay, we should be back. Sorry, we had to uh, technically technical difficulties. Yes, technically did have some technical difficulties. So, yes, we were talking about viney bridges. Viney um, bridges. Viney bridges. <laughs> oh and my god! Which I was going to say terrify me. Yeah, yeah. It, oh my god. Would. Um, I would never. It would. Yeah, rocky tunnels, viney bridges, none of these things are great to me. I, I would do a rocky tunnel before I did a, ro- a viney bridge. I would do a viney bridge before I did a rocky tunnel. Really? I'm more scared of being crushed than falling. As long as the tunnel's not too tight, I can do it. Mm. But I refuse to go on a viney bridge. That's fair. It, it's a side product of being a little bit on the plus side of the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> Hell no, I'm not getting on that thing. Not the viney bridge. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'll leave that for you skinny bitches. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they would have tested these bridges a lot, though. I mean, you have to have alpacas moving Listen, I'm not doubting the ink and ability to engineer a That's viney fair. bridge. I am still not getting on it. That's okay. Yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> and vines do dry out and get creaky exactly. and rocky. Yeah, I can see it. Okay, maybe tunnels of rock is our better option. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh they definitely had that helping out their infrastructure a little bit. Conscripted laborers that I had mentioned before, um, it was part of that whole like tax and you know contribute to your government. So you know we the government gives you what you need. Conscripted laborers existed um, every year. Uh, any male lower than in the lower class um, under eighteen years old every year helped ensure the government that there would be um, sufficient labor for the like harvesting season kind of thing. So it was enough there like individuals, older individuals could take care of their own farms. But that way, if there was like an area that like, you know, was in drought or had a huge harvest or something like that, they could all go help harvest it because it's rather, it's better to put everyone on a project and reap all the benefits from a harvest than let half that harvest rot because you didn't, you know, carefully, right. you know, harvest it. I'm using that word a lot right now. Um, <laughs> hey, cat. Yeah. Harvest. <laughs> um, what is it called when you <laughs> when you pull plants from the ground? Harvest. Um, <laughs> the system is called Mita. And that's how, for the most part, so many, like, they were able to feed the entire civilization without currency was because they made sure with this labor force that everything that could be harvested <clears throat> was harvested. There was a form of conscripted labor, conscripted, there we go, labor for women. It was very different, though. One of the rulers required tribute of women. They were forced to be sent to temples to work or marry high-standing soldiers hmm. from certain areas. Um, 
Definitely not as extensive and rigid in its rules as the Mita labor system. Um, but that the women being sent away to these temples and stuff helped enforce that religious aspect of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, the labor that people would contribute to the government as their form of taxes would be done in exchange for feasts and food. There was the occasional rare trade, but there's no markets. You know, the, the government has so much raw material from the tribute that the average person didn't need to buy things. The government supplied you with the bare minimum of what you needed. Nice. And like the raw materials, tools, et cetera, et cetera. And this again, allows them to build up huge stores of their grain and their food that they could utilize in years when the yield wasn't as high. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, the El Nino and El Nina, like um, weather system that comes mm-hmm. through a few years, like that wouldn't have affected them as terribly because they had buildups in case there was a famine or something like that. So communism was really popping off for them. Um, <laughs> that's not to say that everyone had access to the same stuff, though. Definitely stratification of quality... Sorry, my cat's being... Um, There's definitely stratification of quality. Um, There was a super fine cloth, for example, called kumpi that was woven on a loom and it was only available to nobles. Sometimes it was made out of very, very rare materials. Like, we're talking, like, hummingbird down. Oh, wow. Like, incredibly... Yeah. Like, very rare. Like, only the best people know how to work with it. I can't even, like... Put that in my brain. I know. What? And that's why I was like, yeah, um, textiles, like, are their thing. Like, the ink can produce some incredible textiles. If you're making stuff with hummingbird down... I know. Then I feel like you win textiles. Yeah, you kind of do. So, I mean, among other, like, their notable textile work and everything, they also created, like, great calendars. Um, Archaeologists suggest that there was contact with other civilizations. Um, Like, obviously like their own personal expansion. But we also see such similarities between these three civilizations and their good grasp of the calendar year that it has led some archeologists to suggest that they had overlap within them. Hmm. Like that someone traveled from one to the other or had seen them and brought new ideas or something enough that like, we're just seeing some very uncanny similarities here. Um, but their system was working really, really well for them and really pushing them to new heights. Like I said, they were only, hundred years or so into their true reign of emperors. Mm-hmm. And then in 1532, the Spanish show up um, right before the Spanish did show up. The last ruler died of a sickness. They believe it was brought from another village that had contact with the Spanish. So it was very yeah. likely something that was a result of European yeah. diseases. I don't want to step on your toes for next week, but I do know that disease got to the Inca before yeah. any European did. Yeah. Um, that is one of the very rare not very rare, but one of the, you know, we talk about like, and other civilizations like um, germs and steel being like the two things Fun that really and steel. in the Inca it does. Jared yeah. Diamond, what a guy. <laughs> yep. In this case, um, <laughs> if you have ever taken a history class in America, you know him. Yes, you do. Um, but yeah, the germs definitely reached them first and did it took out their emperor, their Sapa Inca. And it made the succession unsteady, which again, mm-hmm. that's when the Spanish show up. They really, uh, yep, they took really, advantage of that they, one. listen, I'm sure you'll get into it too, but just a little preview of when you do this. Mm-hmm. The Inca were not conquered, they were just kind of like grabbed. Yeah. Like it was very effortless, which is very frustrating. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, they were in they were in such a rocky situation between succession and sickness that the Spanish were just like, oh, it's hey, free real estate. He literally. <laughs> if you don't know that meme, I'm sorry. Look um, it up. Look it up. It's free real estate, um, which it was not. People live there. Indigenous people who should not have been forced off their land and murdered. But the descendants that are still there make up a little less than half of Peru still. Oh, wow. Many of them still in, live in the Andes Mountains. Um, they're very, there are some very close-knit communities within it. Like Sometimes like like marriage is very stigmatized in those communities because you have to marry within the community. Um, but that also means that there's a lot of work done in cooperation with each other because they are such closed communities, and it does preserve their culture. Um, so there are, That's cool. yeah, there, like we see, see a lot of those areas that still specialize in like weaving and creation of textiles and like the designs they use that checkerboard kind of design. That's so iconic with the ink and clothing. Um, we see, um, pockets where the original religion has modified a little bit, but in a modern context, like it's still, it's still recognizable and you can see aspects of it. Um, a lot of them still speak that language, um, and this is when we get to talk a little bit about when the mummies that belong to them and unfortunately were stolen out of their original places that they were found. Um, mm-hmm. when I looked up Peruvian and Andes mountain mummies, you know, I was, um, really not expecting as many results as I did because I know the very famous one that Cal right. mentioned last week. Um, she's called the maiden. Um, okay. fun fact, she was not found alone. I think I did know that. Yeah, there was a. She's the oldest of three that was found together, all young. Um, mm-hmm. But the boy and girl that were found with her were younger. The from what we can tell of like their hair and contents of their system and everything, they've actually believed that the year leading up to their sacrifice, the the that they were made, they were fed like the food of the nobles. Yeah, they were I think... very well taken care of, and the weeks or the year leading up to it, they had a lot of coca powder, like coca leaves, in their system. Hmm. In the last couple weeks, a lot of alcohol, and they believed hmm. that it was almost like a form of drugging them. Interesting. To possibly like make it painless. Some people were suggesting that it was like part of the ritual and everything, but like, I do know that like the Incan have a little bit different conception of human sacrifice, and mm-hmm. that like the younger. Mm-hmm. It's, like, more life force, so it's, like, a bigger sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I remember. I I, I took this class, like, three times because I was a TA for it where we talked about this yeah. kind of stuff. So <laughs> I'm realizing that I know more than I think I do. Yeah, but it's kind of like ringing bells. I could also be completely misremembering just literally everything. So, yeah. Um, but I think that's, I mean, I don't know. I never heard about that. Uh, the contents of their stomach that's yeah. really interesting yeah it, it's it, they were treated very well um the year before they died and that's who i was kind of looking for when i first googled it because yes they they were found and preserved because of the climate conditions they were in almost perfectly and they are being repatriated um they're bringing mm-hmm. brought back to where they belong and where they can be taken care of from other countries that took them and did not have a right to take them um but there i found like just google results i found so many other mummified bodies which makes Mm. sense because i didn't realize that the inca practiced mummification like as part of their culture i thought it was just like the rare instance in which a sacrifice got mummified by the elements but it um like there's like a baby in a a, like a woven basket type thing Mm. that i found that was like way older than this and is in good condition and is being repatriated there's even a small child that has it's so well preserved so well preserved 
that like the hair is still intact. It looks like it was just brushed. And in the pictures, you can see a couple of feathers still oh intact God. in their fingers. Oh my God. Like incredible examples of, um, yeah, like incredible use, like, like incredible mummification that we owe, like it's, both the practices they had at the time, the civilizations there, and also just the climate that they were in. Mm-hmm. But um, there is um, every single one of those that I found when I Googled, all of them are in the process of either being repatriated or someone is fighting for their repatriation, which is very comforting. Yeah. Because it's like Egypt asking for its mummies back. Like mm-hmm. the ones that didn't get eaten. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Victorians. So <laughs> freaks. Yeah. Um, that's that's where a lot of that struggle is at right now. Um, but like I said, there's still so much we don't know, like the keep of having a possible yeah. literary, like a literary uh, as- aspect to them. Like, that's so cool. But like, who's going to figure that out? Like, right. There's how, something, how? it makes you wonder, like, are they permanently lost? I know until we invent time travel. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a lot to learn still, but there's a lot of cool stuff. Unfortunately, we will be on to the sad stuff next week, um, and we will be talking about yeah, boo. the conquering of each of these civilizations. Oh, well, that was really good. Thank I learned you. a lot. Thank I, you. The Inca, I think out of all of them, I mean, they're all interesting, but I think the Inca might be my favorite to hear about, because yeah how it's so unique it is so unique and how like i mean even just their geographic location is so unique and i just i'm like how do you live there that's so cool um so i was looking forward to this episode and you did a great job thank you um and i did i'm looking on bat conservation international uh-huh i was right you were right i was right um okay okay i'm reading explain. off of bat conservation international about bat guano I'm on the edge of my chair. Um, there's a cave in Texas. Hell yeah. Uh-huh. Because we do have a lot of bats here. Um, but it's like the largest bat colony, yada, 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 yada. Um, okay. For many generations, its value was in what bats produced. Guano, bat poop for the rest of us, was mined for use as a fertilizer going back at least as far as the 1800s when colonists first settled the area. It was Texas' most valuable mineral product before oil was discovered, and Bracken Cave had plenty of it. Fran Hudgens, director of Bracken Cave Preserve, Bracken Cave Preserve says recent measurements estimate the current depth of guano between 75 and 100 feet in the 117 foot tall cave. Oh guano was also holy crap! Yeah, literally. Guano was also later used in the production of gunpowder during Civil War and World War One. The caves bats were in the cave bats were enlisted in the service of war during World <laughs> War Two when military researchers tried to develop a way to use them to deliver tiny firebombs. <sighs> Oh my god, they drafted the bats. Yeah, and then a little further on, it says, when experimented on at the base, some of the bats got out and flew over to some of the buildings and set them on fire. (laughs) Hell yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't wrong. (laughs) I can't believe I wasn't wrong about that. That sounds so outlandish. Okay, that's even crazier than, than, because I thought you meant he was saying, the guy was saying, like, Oh, that they used the guano and bombs, but to, like, it actually It was using gunpowder. Yeah, but to actually try to do, like, carrier pigeon style like <laughs> bat war tactics i mean it's a whole different level i mean Man. civil war gunpowder gu- bat guano hey. would be oh that would be such a good band name civil war bat guano or bat guano gunpowder bat guano gunpowder oh that's a good one copyright us if you're ever uh we'll sell it to you for royalties but yeah oh, Man, that's so, good i'm glad you googled that i'm glad i did too wow you really learned something new every day, day. that's my fun <laughs> fact for the day there you um, go 
Yeah. Um, oh, I so guess it's break time. It is break time. So go grab some water, touch some grass, unless it's raining, in which touch your nose, I guess. I you don't can know. touch grass if it's raining. You'll just get wet. That's good. That's also fun. I usually went out and danced in the rain when I was younger. <laughs> when I was a more happy and optimistic <laughs> child. <laughs> What's your recommendation for the day, Cal? <laughs> I went out to dance in the rain. <laughs> I did a lot. We we would make paper boats and run them along the Oh, I played as a rain as a kid, yeah. but I would never describe it as dancing. Oh, I definitely did that. <laughs> a lot of stomping and dancing and running and belly flopping. There you go. Yeah. So what's your rec? I had one and I remembered it. Oh, yes. Um, I watched the new Hocus Pocus movie and it was Ooh. actually very good. Nice. So that is what I'm recommending. Um, very it's, nice. I think it, it holds true to the spirit of the first movie. So oh, if good. you like Hocus Pocus, you will enjoy this one. Oh, yay. Um, so, and yes. it's, it, it was like, it was better than I was expecting. So, and I think most people agree with that. Like, oh, this is actually good. So yeah, that's my recommendation. Nice, nice. My recommendation, I am rewatching Lord of the Rings um, because I was starting a Lord of the Rings styled craft. Um, and I've decided to watch the extended editions of all of them. <laughs> How many hours is that? I don't know. Probably like 12. I don't know. Ooh. Um, but I'm only watching them while I work on this project. So it's going to be a very long drawn out process. Um, but I recommend, you know, watching a childhood movie that you loved and adored and just getting in that fall aesthetic, that just warm, you know, reminiscent, sentimental kind of fall vibe. Yeah. Fall is very nostalgic. Yeah, so I recommend that. Watch something that you watched as a child again and see if it holds up. Tweet at us. Let us know if it does because there's some things I rewatched as an adult and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> Whoops. Nope. Wow. Not what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, is this where I come out as someone who's never seen Lord of the Rings? That's okay, actually. I. It is one of those things that, that I, I actually completely understand it. It's well, not everyone's thing. It's not that it's not my thing. It's that it's that it wasn't my mom's thing and mm. she hates them. Yeah. <laughs> and so fair. I just never had the opportunity to watch them growing up. Yeah. And so I just haven't, you know. Yeah. And I think I would enjoy them. I just I think you it's would such too. a commitment that it I'm is. like Ugh. Again, just the first 3 original Peter Jacksons are like probably like 12 to 13 hours. Oh, I know. I'm very aware how long they are. Um <laughs> That's yeah. part of the reason why cuz you put a kid down you know, like an eight-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, old enough to where they can pay attention mm-hmm. and they're like, Ooh, I'm into this. But yeah, with my sh- shitty attention span that I'm literally playing a phone game as I'm saying these words, <laughs> yeah. I, it might not be your best. Yeah. 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 Maybe one day, you know, I really tried if you're to ever, Star like, Wars. sick and like literally couldn't yeah. like focus on anything else. And I like, had to just lay there and watch something. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. Oh no, 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 no. I have tried with Star Star Wars. I have really genuinely given it more than one chance and I just cannot watch them. That's okay. They are just not interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> but Lord of the Rings, I think would be a different story. Yeah. I know most people I'd be like, oh, you have to at least give it a shot, but I know you and your attention span. And I know that you have to be at a very specific place to be able to do to that. To watch a movie. Yeah. yeah. Maybe one day. Especially one of that length. Yeah. So we anyway, both have that problem. Well, yeah. that's pretty solid recommendation. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. In that case, I'm ready for yours. I don't know what it is, but I'm ready for it. All right. So today, because both of mine ended up being pretty short, I did two. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing should take us not too long. So I'm trying to get us out of here early. 
Um, I appreciate the double whammy though, because if we aren't going to get a lot of Halloween, yeah, get a content, twofer, get it, yeah, yeah. So I thought it would be fun to do like a haunted history place, um, and then I thought it would be extra mm. fun to do an international one. So today I have one in India and one in Indonesia. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Yeah, we're getting global here. I love this. Yeah. Um. So the first one, the one in India, the location is called the Bangar or it's probably Bangar. no i have never heard of it yeah you should look it up because it's actually a really gorgeous place um I am doing like that it's like the architecture in it is really like just gorgeous to look at it's like very classical indian architecture and it's like surrounded by like the dense forest and it's like oh the aesthetics i love a good aesthetic oh it is very pretty it's very pretty um so it is a fort as um you might infer from the name that is located on the border of the Sariska Reserve, which is a nature preserve that is actually home to a lot of tigers. So fun fact. In the Aravali range, range of hills in the Alwar district of Rajasthan. It's um, the nearest village to it is called Gola Kabas and it is about th- 235 kilometers from Delhi. So just putting it in location. So, we're in kind of, it's not a very populated area that it's in. It's very kind of rural. Um, not too many people li- live in this, well, at least near where the fort is. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> it's kind of like, you have to hike there. One of the articles I was reading, because it was really hard to find sources on both of these, as it usually is with like haunted stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a different um, kind of sourcing. And it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the sources literally said the best time to visit is in winters because you have to make like a long hike up to oh, it. Oh, wow. And it's like, so you will actually be able to enjoy the place. That's like dedication. Once you get there. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense for me personally as someone who runs extremely hot. Um, so this fort was built for um, Man Singh the first by his father, Madho Singh in the 17th century so like 1600s we're looking at we don't have an exact date but this guy madho singh was a very powerful general in emperor akbar's court um so he had a lot of money to throw around and as i mentioned it was beautiful and it used to be very very powerful it's believed that over 10,000 people used to reside in the fort because it's actually it's like basically a small city there's a lot of temples there's a palace for the leader of um the fort i don't know if he would technically be called like he's not like a king i don't think yeah he just was in he was like the ruler of the city in okay. this fort um and it's complete with four gates uh there um they have very blah, blah, blah. there are waterfalls throughout the fort to aid with airflow and cool the space down there are um let me count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different temples to different gods in like the hin- Hindu religion. Um, the Gopinath temple specifically is probably the most prominent and is definitely like the most visually mm-hmm. um, interesting. You probably saw it in your pictures. It's yeah, really, really gorgeous. It's it sits on a fourteen foot raised plinth and is carved out of yellow stone, and it is. Very cool. There is a resident residence for the priest, um, and there is also a bazaar area, and there's even a, a building specifically for, like, the dancers who live there to live in. So big. 
it is really big um and it's like on like it's like nestled in three hills so like once you get to the emperor's like palace way in the back of it you can like look down on the whole fort and like people are like that's the best view like you have to make it all the way up there because then you can really understand this like just the size of this place um yeah so there's a market a bazaar and you can still see like the old ruins for it a lot of it is in ruins but a lot of it is still standing um so it's really cool to kind of get to see both sides of that um yeah but the ghost story comes in because one day all the residents of the force fort mysteriously vanished according to legend so there's two running legends Mm. that still remain to this day on like why this happened the first is the curse of them a man by the name of guru balanath and he's actually known as a sad a sadhu a sadhu um, I could be pronouncing that very wrong, and I probably am, so I'm sorry. A general disclaimer. I know we say this every time, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're going to do our best with words, but she can, I'm sorry. She's got a French pronunciation, and I can kind of do the German. And oh, the second one is like got Dutch words in it, <laughs> and I was like, absolutely not. I, I was like, I would rather do the Indonesian words than the Dutch ones. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was looking at the Dutch words, and I was like, uh, uh, there's so many letters. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he was like, this guy was like an ascetic, basically a monk um, who kind of lived in that area when the first guy, the general who wanted to build that place, was looking to build it, Monsignor the first. And so Monsignor goes and asks this guru, hey, do you mind if I build this fort? And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. But under no circumstances do I want anything you build in the fort to cast a shadow over his house. So he doesn't want his view blocked, basically. Okay. Which I understand. Very valid. Okay. Um, and he's like, if this happens, I'm going to like put a curse on your city and it's going to meet its untimely demise eventually. Okay. Um, and of course... The king was like, yeah, sure. But apparently his descendants did not keep this promise and built onto the fort and eventually cast a shadow oh. over this guru's um, house, I guess, where whatever, whatever structure he didn't want obstructed. Um, and so his curse befell the fort. Which either killed everyone or drove them out or... Whatever. whatever course whatever curses <laughs> yeah. do whatever generic whatever, curses yeah whatever he decided it, it's cursed now the second one and kind of the more popular legend that you'll hear um if you go to this fort is that of princess ratnavi uh, ratnav uh, sorry ratnavati who was known as a very very beautiful woman and she ta- she caught the attention of the tantric singhai and this tantric is kind of like a magician, but this guy was like specifically like a dark magician. He did like oh. he did like dark magic, so he's like a bad oh, guy. Okay, and he's like, oh, she's so beautiful. So he I like mean, it tries is a curse. So it has yeah, to be. well, this guy's yeah. no good. We already know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he tries to like convince her to like marry him or whatever, and she's just not interested. Well, don't do it. Mm-hmm. So he attempts to win her love by hiding a love potion in her perfume. But she found out about it and poured out the entire bottle on a huge boulder, which then crushed tan- the tantric sing sing high. So I'm not oh, the sure boulder how it crushed. Yes, him. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. It fell. On I him. don't. I'm like, how big is this boulder? Big enough. 
did she throw it at him? Did it become enlivened with the power of you know, the perfume in, uh, and crush him? You know, in uh, Snow White? I, I do know of Snow White, in, yes. And the, how the queen's trying to push that boulder off the edge of the, the cliff with a stick. Vaguely? I, I vaguely remember this, but I think it's like that. You just leverage and you, you, you put the boulder right on the I edge like of the to cliff say, and then you push it over. Just because I believe in women's wrongs, I like to think that she <laughs> she crushed him with it. I like that too. <laughs> um, I think I think she had him sitting so. on the edge of the cliff or wait till, wait until he was walking by. Okay. Cal last, early, or last night mentioned that she hates how... Um, uh, some people try to like give a narrative to stories that do not have a narrative. So oh, I'm going yeah. to create this. Well, this get... is a legend. <clears throat> this is not historic fact. I'm going to so... set the scene now. Okay, Hold set on. the scene. For... I don't mind when it happens to it. Listen, I'm talking about, I was talking specifically about. I know what you're talking some about. Some things that I was just like, where are you getting this information from? This yeah. is a legend. So please elaborate as much as you want to. Okay. It was an evening. It was a cool, dark evening as he walked along his usual path that he had walked every day before towards the market. Little did he know, though, the woman he had so endeavored to charm was waiting above the cliffside, holding a rock in her hands. <laughs> Not just a the rock, lie. a boulder. <laughs> well, I was doing really well, Cal. <laughs> she waited, anticipating the sound of his footsteps as he neared closer and closer. Don't laugh. <laughs> Trying so hard. Only when he was... A- mere step away from right beneath her did she finally give the boulder one last push allowing it to plummet towards the earth below crushing him in the process but she did not know that she had unleashed unleashed a curse upon them all (laughs) (laughs) how bad was it that was good no that was good i was in it i was there thank you i I could visualize (laughs) i heard the the chirping of the insects (laughs) In the forest. I was there. I was right there with you. <laughs> yep. But apparently that's not too far off probably from what happened. At least in my in my mind. He got crushed. Because with his last dying breath, he placed a curse on the fort, which led to its destruction. Dun, dun, dun. Proving this curse to be true, it is said that in the next year, the ruler of the fort suffered a calamitous de- defeat at the hands of an enemy, and his with his entire army being annihilated, and all the inhabitants of Bung Bengar were brutally massacred. Um, Oof! I feel like if someone, if a whole company of like soldiers and civilians were brutally massacred, <laughs> yeah, like 10, it would have survived as fact. We would like know about not it. like an urban legend. Yeah, like, we would have a better documentation. I'm pretty sure that's that's probably because like too. usually one person can escape and then mm-hmm. live to tell the tale. But you yeah. know what? I, I either one works for me. I love a good urban legend. And of the princess. It is said that while we are not sure of her exact fate, that she was condemned to roam the fort, stuck in an eternal limbo. She's said to haunt the place to this day. Okay. The truth of the matter is probably after um, a couple people in the lineage of the guy who, like, built the place, so the Sings, um, that it kind of just fell out of favor. A new, like fort was constructed by the same family and so everyone just kind of like went on to that one opportunities began to dwindle in the fort of bangar so it's kind of like eh, just kind of whatever and then it's thought that the last blow happened that like mm. kind of wiped out the population from there was a famine in, in, in 1783 so it just mm. kind of like 
you know, people are like, okay, I'm done with this place, which yeah. is so crazy to me because, like, could you imagine if, like, the whole population of, like, Cincinnati, Ohio was like, okay, we're done with this place. Yeah, which that does say a lot about how bad the famine would have had to be for everyone to just I be like, eh, we built this huge, beautiful edifice and, and uh, what's the word? I'm like, a building. That's the word. A building. <laughs> and they're like, ah, we're out. Bye. Like, it had to be something bad. Yeah. And I guess, like, you know, it's not that many people. And if, you know, a new, better fort is being built. But I just, you know, just to just totally, like, leave a place and never return is so crazy to me. So maybe there was a curse. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. If there really was a famine. Hey, you never know. Maybe it just was a little delayed. So anyway, so that's kind of the history, quote unquote, the legend of the Fort of Brangar. That's a good one. I've never heard of it before. Yeah. So it's so pretty that even without it being haunted, I kind of just want to visit it. I know. I was like, if anything, like it's something I had never heard of. And yeah. like, if you're ever in India in that area, sure, go visit it because it's really, really gorgeous. And where is it located exactly again? It's a great. So I'm not sure exactly where, like on a map, but it's about 235 miles from Delhi. And I'm oh, okay. not sure like what what direction that's the best I could find. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure if you Google it, you will be able to like Google Maps. Yeah. I just didn't do that because my brain didn't think to do that because <laughs> I overcomplicate things. So what's really interesting about this fort is that the official like... Um, I forget exactly the board. It's like the archaeology board of India or something has like oh. posted official signs that like no one's allowed in the fort before or, or sorry, after sunset or before sunrise. Like you cannot go in the fort in the dark. There is a uptick usually in places that are supposedly haunted yes. for vandals, which yes. sucks. But, but it also it could be, it could be well, the ghosties. It's obviously the ghosties. Just like it could it's be always, the always aliens. <laughs> um, so it's really, I mean, it just kind of adds to the like mystique of the place. Like, ooh, why can't I go in this place it's after dark? Um, <clears throat> there's a couple stories associated with the site. The first one is that allegedly like any house in the area. And sites so just said area. Hmm. So I don't know how big this area is, but like any house in the area cannot have a roof like any roof that is built will fall and it has resulted in the deaths of like a couple people like houses can't have roofs in that area is that weird hmm That's okay kinda, so i'm i'm this curse narrative it's i'm buying it a little, a little bit more, yeah some there's some bad juju in here <laughs> yeah anyway uh so that's something very interesting to note um, there's one story about apparently there was these three quote unquote daredevils and a lot of locals like to stay the story. So they were like, you know, these three guys who are up to no good. So they were like, you know what? I bet we can stay in the fort all day. They're night. American tourists. Oh yeah. I can guess bros. that they were American tourists. <laughs> um, actually if I saw somewhere that if you are an American tourist, you have to buy like a, like an, a not native tourist. Mm. You have to fi- buy like a special permit because the area is so hard to navigate oh. because it's kind of set back and it's kind of a way and there is like that's, a hike involved and you can't get lost. That's probably a yeah. good precaution to take. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. A lot of, I will say this about Americans, our, um, our unwarranted confidence when it comes to navigating situations that we have no clue what we're doing is dangerous and you gotta you gotta put a a hold on it sometimes otherwise we will do some (laughs) stupid stuff yeah so um so despite one of the the three being equipped with a flashlight he fell into a deep well but he was rescued by his friends and he was injured so they rushed him to a hospital 
But on the way to the hospital, all three of them were killed in a road accident. So it's thought that since they were there after dark, they were mm. they were they were up for grabs. They were gonna die anyway, whether it was in the fort itself or on the way to the hospital. So mm. spooky. that's spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the main story. Um, it said that you can hear strange noises coming from inside the fort at night, and like the air around and in the fort just kind of gets like this weird feeling to it like really heavy and like dark and Mm -hmm. like it's just not not good vibes at the fork out for dark so if you're gonna visit make sure you're there bright and sunny (laughs) but yeah so and one of the most well-known apparitions in the temple is that of a little boy who is often seen peeking out of windows throughout the fort okay so that is the the bengar fort oh okay i like it yeah so a little spooky and i was like even if you know, these aren't like super deep and obviously yeah, they're not. It's still fun. It's still it's Halloween. It's fun to hear it's about like, yeah, it's Halloween. It's fun to hear about places that I wouldn't have otherwise heard about. Yeah. And so the second one is called Lawang Sewu. And this is in Indonesia. Okay. So a Lawang Sewu literally translate to translates to a thousand doors. Um, there's not that many doors throughout the structure. That would be an insane amount of doors, but there are a lot of doors and windows it's like 600 windows and then a couple hundred doors so like okay still a lot of a lot of entrances and exits Mm -hmm. um and it was built to be the headquarters of the dutch east indies railway company and samarang in indonesia so it's um in central java so the island of java in indonesia Mm -hmm. also i was listening to some podcasts about this and i kept getting confused because the japanese do enter the story but you call people from Java Javanese, and so I was like, "Oh, who are you talking about?" Hold on, wait, 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 <laughs> wait, 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 back up. So the structure consists of several buildings. There are four main ones. Um, the two biggest are are named Building A and Building B, and the two smaller ones are named, guess what? Building C and yep. Building D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I figured, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So, uh, Building A has two identical towers on it and they were both used to store water and they had a capacity of about 700 7000 liters or 1800 US gallons so two big water towers mm-hmm. you know i'm sure water towers serve a very essential function and my parents live literally a house away from a water tower but i do not know exactly what they do They're maybe i should google water that water storage i do know that yeah. yes yeah but why because why is it a tower? Sometimes you need why water. is it in a tower? Oh, why is it not like in ground? Why why do you have to put water in the sky? That's a good question. Why not why not in ground? And if you've ever seen the movie Aquamarine, there's a mermaid in that, all of them. So It's been years since I've heard that name. I don't know <laughs> if I remember any of that. I know I must have watched it at some point, but <laughs> anyway, so this building is like gorgeous. Actually, this whole structure is really gorgeous. It was designed by a man, a Dutch man named Cosman Citroen, and it is designed in the new indie style. So it's kind of like um, the combination of Dutch architecture with like local um, Indonesian design. And if you look at the building, pictures of the building, you do kind of see the influences of both. Mm. I'm not su- super familiar with indonesian architecture mm-hmm. it does look very dutch to me very european to me yeah <laughs> his car just peeled out <laughs> really just peeled out of a parking lot <laughs> yep. um 
so it's also really interesting and, and then like these are like grand buildings they feature like stained glass windows there's a giant staircase in the center of building a there was um a ballroom you know very typical to um buildings built at that time the mm-hmm. construction began in 1904 and it was completed in 1907 so like it was mm-hmm. a yeah you know, it was yeah. supposed to be grand it's like the headquarters for the railroad like it's a yeah. big deal you know um very ornate and opulent, yeah. I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's kind of sad because a lot of those details are lost because it's said empty. Oh. I'll get to that in a minute, but I would have loved to have seen it, like, you know, in its day-day. But I'm a sucker for turn-of-the-century Victorian slash Edwardian buildings, even if they are yeah. the result of colonialism. Oh, I was going to say, oh, yeah. <sighs> colonialism. Why did you have to make things pretty? I'm sure Indonesian architecture is very gorgeous, oh, I'm sure. too. I just... I'm not. Well, actually, yeah, because in Indonesia is that it's that really famous temple. Because I saw it on the. It pops up when you. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it now. Yeah, I mean, it is. It it, it reminds me a lot of. Um, is this it? I know that they've got some, like, incredibly gorgeous ones. Like, the spires on them are, like, really tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is really cool, too. There's a lot. Now that I'm remembering what Indonesian (laughs) architecture is, yes, it is very gorgeous. I can confirm. It reminds It's very similar to Indian um, in the details and stuff. But anyway, that is beside the point. Um, What's interesting about this building, too, is that it actually features a series of underground tunnels that run to other important sites in the city, including the harbor and the governor's mansion. Building B is located kind of directly behind building A, and it's really interesting because it was built with a basement that was intentionally was made to be partially flooded so that the building is cooled through evaporation. Oh, oh yeah. So pretty, pretty cool. Um, yeah. So that is kind of like the building and its creation and all this stuff. And so it's like a big complex. It's supposed to be fancy. Like it was a big deal. Um, it functioned as the headquarters for the Dutch East Indies railway company until 1942. Because in 1942, the Japanese invaded Indonesia as part of, like, their colonial phase uh, yes. that happened during... That phase. Before it's and just during, a phase, they, they, they went through a little bit of a phase um, that happened before and during World War II. Um, the Japanese took over and allegedly turned the building of... Or the basement of Building B into a dungeon and, like, in which they would torture and execute you know dutch prisoners or indonesian prisoners so if you don't know anything about the japanese during world war ii they were notoriously violent so that doesn't surprise me too much unfortunately um still sucks a lot though oh yeah yeah so um good news though they weren't there for long in 1945 they were forced out of the country by an actual like indonesian rebellion against them the indonesian government then took over the complex and renamed it the national railway company um and had possession of it for a little bit (laughs) because then the dutch kind of snuck back in through those tunnels i talked about before (laughs) and the five-day battle took place between the dutch and the indonesian and five of the indonesian railway workers did pass away um and in 1950 
there was a monument called the Tugumuda monument that was built in remembrance for those people who died in that battle. Because again, it was like, we don't, we finally got rid of the Dutch and we managed to get rid of the Japanese. And then, Can we please bam. just be independent? Can we just have something nice? <laughs> yeah. So this battle was called the battle of Simmering and it was like pretty, and it's pretty, it was pretty deadly. Um, so sucks a lot but they eventually were able to secure their independence i believe in 1949 indonesia was able to be its own country finally after being under dutch control for i think like 300 years so yeah so that's good um then the building kind of was given to the indonesian railway organization um and was pretty neglected uh, they didn't really invest anything into actually upkeep in the building and they went on to purchase some other buildings. So it was just kind of sitting empty in 1992. Indonesia did declare it a cultural property of Indonesia. So that, I guess that like made it kind of important and it stood empty from basically the forties until 2009. Whoa. Yeah. Um, when a restoration of effort was undertaken to turn it into a tourist destination because it is such a big complex and yeah. it would be pretty cool to go see. Um, the Jakarta Post quote said, quote, like at about its state in 2009, that it was, quote, dark and evidently sick. Its white walls were faded throughout, blackened by pollution and neglect. Rendered walls are cracked and any wallpaper has long since fallen away to reveal the red red bricks beneath. Molded weeds grow over much of the building and mice and rats are the chief chief residents. So, like, not in good shape. On July 5th, 2011, it was... The building B was reopened to the public, um as like a tourist spot they wanted basically it sounded like they wanted to do like a whole like cultural center with like a gym and restaurants and stuff like that like that's that's their idea and i was like yeah i mean it's adaptive reuse of a yeah historic building which we support because otherwise historic buildings will just flat out get neglected yep as as case in point you know um but most of its function today is just tours of the building, including, of course, do- ghost tours. It's thought that about a thousand visitors visit the building each day. Oh, and I'm whoa. Building A might have been open now, but I'm not. I just I saw that I know for sure Building B is open and restored, so that's pretty cool. Um, there are a few different entities that are known to haunt this place. The first is the ghost of a Dutch woman said to have um, taken her own life in the building. Um, and another Dutch woman who is headless somehow haunts oh. is said to haunt the basement, which that doesn't surprise me considering the Japanese who were, who knows what they were doing down there. Yeah. So, um, so if you go look in the basement and the, the basement is said to be kind of like the hot spot, yeah. which kind of makes sense. Cause I mean, water also holds on to a lot of energy like that. It's like a, yeah, it's a, water has an interesting effect on like hauntings and stuff. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me like with the violent history of the basement and like the water thing, but something's going on down there. Huh. Um, Did not know that. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the most notorious ghost or spirit rather is that of a Kunti Lanak and Kunti Lanak is the term for a vampiric manifestation of a woman who died during childbirth. Oh. Yeah. They're said to take... Vampiric? Yes. Okay. Okay. They're said to take the form 
of pale-skinned women with long black hair with red eyes and that wear white dresses that are smeared with blood. Legend says they are able to change themselves into beautiful humans to prey on men. It reminds me a lot of La Llorona. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds really similar. Which is, again, crazy because it's literally the other side of the world. Other side of the world. So, hmm, what's going on there? So, ooh, spooky. So, if you ever visit this Mm. place, you might keep an eye out for for Miss (laughs) Kuntilanak. So, and of course, it's location as a haunted or it's reputation as a haunted destination was confirmed was even more like solidified because in 2007 there was a horror movie released about it called Lawang Sewu Dindam Kuntilanak um, where a group of high school students from Jakarta come to the building to party but instead are locked in and must fight the ghost of a Dutch woman a chained man and of course the Kuntilanak Okay, so that, that actually is a fun one to watch. Luang Sewu. So there's some spooky history for you. Two places I had never heard of. Of course, they're like pretty small histories, but yeah. no less important. And that's Happy Halloween. I love that. That was great. You did a great job. Thank you. That was it was really a lot fun. of fun to look into because I was like, ooh. ooh yeah. So especially say, legends and creatures. And I might have to do a post-Halloween haunty one or something because... Yeah. Yeah, because I now I'm kind of in the vibe. I know. I, when you said, like, ooh, I want to be more in the fall spirit, I was like, say I less. I got you. <laughs> Perfect. There you go. So anyway, oh, that's job. our show, folks. That's our... What is it? That's all, folks. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it, I suppose it's Bunny, right? Mm. No, is it... Porgy Pig. Porgy Pig, thank you. Yep. Um, yeah. Which, like, that's kind of sucks to name a pig after pork. Pork. I know. Said like naming a beef cow <laughs> <laughs> anyway this is my cow named beef <laughs> we'll do it too oh yeah um yeah so thank you all for tuning in for another week um we're gonna we'll have an interesting recording schedule for the next few weeks as we get into november because cal's planning on going on some grand adventures back to uh her house um <laughs> yeah and so Ooh, we'll be far and wide yeah we might be a little off on world events but um that's all right. That's all right. We do know that right now, though, I want to wish luck and um, good fate, I guess. I don't know what the universal term would be for everyone across the world dealing with conflict right now, especially in Iran, where things are escalating for people who are fighting for women's rights. And uh, as we as we speak, this morning is the first, not the first news of it, but I uh, started hearing more about uh, the prison with all those protesters, especially college age students and stuff who mm. it's on fire and they're literally killing them in the walls, like inside the building. It's, it's escalating very quickly. Mm. And, um, obviously Cal and I stand with people who are fighting for the rights of women. Um, and our hope for y'all is that things are better and safer and that change happens, mm-hmm. um, for everyone going into that and and the rest of the world too with ukraine and even here as people recover from a really bad hurricane and stuff um just we're thinking about y'all and the rest of the world um if you've got something that you do want to hear us talk about history wise that would help inform you on a particular topic or conflict um that's something that i was talking to a friend about and she's like y'all should 
you know, if there's something that's like going on, it might be a good idea to talk about. And I know we did that for Roe v. Wade, but if there is something you want to hear about, please tell us, you know, tweet at us at T-I-N-A-H-L podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, that's, I was thinking too, I was like, I need to be better about that because there are a lot of things happening now that are the results of decades, century long history in certain cases. So it would be very helpful to have that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So Halloween drew me in closer because sometimes it is nice to just have that escape as well. No, no, no. It was, you know? it was a good one to do. So, yeah. but um, in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you can also email us at this is not a history lecture at gmail.com. Um, and you know, leaving a review is always super helpful. Um, we've had a really great consistent viewership over the last Woo-hoo. while. So we thank y'all for that, but leaving reviews super helps us. Um, and every review you leave, is one more spoopy movie that Cal gets to watch. There you go. I was going to say a very similar thing. So, yeah. so perfect. And yeah. in the meantime, try and stay as safe and healthy as you can. And this is just a reminder that this has not been a history lecture. Bye. Bye.